Anyway, thank you very much for the invitation uh, to uh, be here this afternoon. I'm not an academic, and I don't have uh, a huge amount of time for research, so I have to rely on um, published material that I can draw on to, um, to, um, to uh, um, um, give me my ideas and to enable me to put together my uh, talks. Um, but I have studied history, and I've always been interested in the interaction between <coughs> Catholicism and Ireland's political and cultural identity. And the period in Irish history which interests me most is the period between the political demise of Charles Stuart Parnell in 1890 and the death of W.B. Yeats in 1939. James Joyce died two years later in Zurich in 1941. Now, by the time of the death of Yeats, shall we say, first of all, the time of the death of Parnell, I think, is a kind of a watershed in Irish history because it brings to a close a period of, of um, say, 90 years, from the time of the Act of Union of 1800, when you saw a series of efforts, parliamentary and insurrectionary, to undo the Union of 1800 and to provide some form of self-government to Ireland. All of those efforts failed, including, of course, the final effort made by Parnell when he managed to convert Gladstone to the cause of home rule but wasn't able to uh, secure uh, parliamentary approval for the concept of Irish home rule. And if you turn the clock forward, 49 years to 1939 and the death of Yeats. There you have a year when Ireland, if you like, completed its journey towards sovereignty, which had been underway between 1916 and 1922, when we finally became independent as the Irish Free State. And then throughout the 20s and 30s, the gradual extension and deepening of Irish sovereignty. But 1939 was the final assertion of the reality of Irish sovereignty when our country declared its neutrality during the Second World War. And that's the ultimate expression of sovereignty that you are willing to go it alone during wartime. Now my topic this afternoon is James Joyce and Catholic Ireland. And I begin with a relatively well-known quotation from Joyce. In the portrait of the artist as a young man, he includes the following lines, which form part of a discussion between Stephen Dedalus, who's Joyce's alter ego, and his student friend, Cranley. And this took place uh, during the university years at what is now University College Dublin. And the quote goes, It's a curious thing, do you know, Cranley said dispassionately, how your mind is supersaturated with the religion in which you say you disbelieve. This, of course, captures something about Joyce that he's, he's super saturated. And, he, and this, is, this is Joyce himself recognizing, writing in around 1914 uh, or 1913-14, recognizing that while he had rejected Catholicism at that time, his mind was super saturated with the religion in which he had come to abandon. 
So in 1904, when Joyce first met his future wife, Nora Barnacle, he wrote to her that he had, quote, left the Catholic Church, hating it most fervently, and declaring himself to make open war upon it by what I write, do, and say. Now, my argument this afternoon is that Joyce was super saturated with the Catholic Ireland from which he emerged at the turn of the century, and that his rejection of Catholicism went hand in hand with an absolute obsession that he had with the Catholic Ireland he left in 1904. And Joyce, I would remind you, left Ireland at a time when <coughs> Catholic Ireland was coming into its own and it was acquiring a shape and an influence that would operate and influence Ireland throughout the 20th century. Joyce's Ireland was Catholic Ireland and he was its prime literary forensicist and critic. So Joyce was the first great writer in the English language to emerge from Catholic Ireland. Every one of his outstanding predecessors in the Irish literary canon, Swift, Goldsmith, Sheridan, Ryan Edgeworth, Wilde, Shaw, Yeats and Singh, had all come from Church of Ireland backgrounds. In that sense, Yeats was quite correct when he observed in his famous Senate speech on divorce that the Anglo-Irish community from which he came one of the great stocks of Europe, as he called them, the people of Burke, Grattan, Swift, Emmett and Parnell, had created, quote, most of the modern literature of this country, end quote. Now, at least that would have been true had Yeats been speaking a decade before he spoke, but that speech was given in the mid-1920s, when Joyce had, to some extent, transformed the Irish literary scene, and you had a writer there who didn't come this Anglo-Irish background who had become this titan of world literature by that time with the publication of Ulysses in 1922. Now Yeats's statement that the Anglo-Irish had produced, quote, the best of Ireland's political intelligence, end quote, was a more questionable claim. Although when you think of it, Wolf Tone, Thomas Davis, Isaac Butt and Parnell, to name a few, all of whom came from uh, Protestant backgrounds. You can see Yeats's point about the political contribution of the Church of Ireland and Presbyterian communities in Ireland. After Parnell, in fact, no nationalist, no Irish nationalist leader has come from anything other than a Catholic background. It doesn't mean that they were necessarily devout Catholics, or but they all come, they all came from, if you think about uh, uh, I mean, uh, Pierce, um, McDonough, uh, De Valera, um, Cosgrave, uh, Costello, uh, Cosgrave again, all of the subsequent political leaders of our independent country have come from Catholic uh, nationalist uh, backgrounds. And that's not because there was a particular aversion to having people from another background, simply because uh, that, that was the minority, that was the, uh, by far the majority background in Ireland uh, until fairly recent times when we've seen uh, the country's demography change quite a bit on account of immigration. Against which, by the way, there is no resistance in Ireland. There's very little, uh, there's nothing 
akin to UKIP-style nationalism to be uh, found in Ireland, uh, despite the fact that the percentage of people born outside of state in Ireland is actually higher than it is in Britain, but there is no uh, public space for any anti-immigrant uh, sentiment of the kind to be found elsewhere in Europe. So W.B. Yeats's achievement was to turn Ireland into a source of inspiration for a high literature. Because previously, perhaps, if you think about the 19th century, you had Irish writers from a kind of an Irish nationalist background, but they, none of them really made it into the, to the, the upper reaches of, of high literature. Um, and yet the achievement was to, to, to create a, um, a literature for Ireland in the English language and to, dis and, and to spawn a distinctly Irish literary movement, which would be centred in Dublin rather than in London, as previous Irish literary figures had tended to locate themselves in London in order to um, flourish in their literary careers. Joyce adopted a contrarian attitude towards the Irish literary revival, as towards almost everything else, by the way. He was essentially a contrarian. Whatever it was, was the established canon Joyce tended to have a go at it. Um, so, for example, he took a pot shot in his first ever published essay, published in 1902 when he was a student, called The Day of the Rabblement. He took aim at the Irish literary revival. And he dismissed Yeats and his school of Irish writing for being in hot to conventional images tired images of rural Ireland. Joyce had no interest in rural Ireland and in fact if you look through Joyce's great works of portraits, um, uh, Ulysses and, and Dublin's, you'll find virtually no uh, reference to uh, rural Ireland. Uh, I mean he makes one trip to Cork with his father in uh, portrait and that's, that's about it really as far as um, anything outside of Dublin is concerned. Everything else is centred firmly in Dublin. Uh, so he was a, very much a, a phenomenon of, of Dublin. And his background was very different from Yeats. I want to argue in this paper that Joyce's achievement was actually the literary counterpart, the political transformation of Ireland that took place in the period between 1900 and 1922, when Ireland became independent. So Joyce's achievement in the, in the literary field was part of that generation of people, other members of which were involved in transforming Ireland during those years. So, because, for example, I want to mention four figures from that period. All contemporaries of James Joyce, all with a very similar background to Joyce, the other four made a mark in the political world. Patrick Pierce, Thomas MacDonough, Eamon de Valera, and Tom Kettle. Now I'll go back and mention each of those again, so for those who are not familiar with Irish history, I'll explain who they were. So, Joyce, I would say, was a product of the same environment that produced those four political figures, one of whom became the dominant figure in the Devil became the dominant figure in 20th century Irish history and politics, 
remaining as president into his 10th decade, uh, only, only stepping down as president in the early 70s, at the age of more than 90. Um, so how do you understand Catholic Ireland in the era of James Joyce? A recent study has observed that, quote, institutional Catholicism exploded in the mid-Victorian era, end quote. And the devotional lives of Irish Catholics came more and more into line with the Roman practice at that time. In the first half of the 19th century, Ireland was a very unusual Catholic country, and religious observance was not that strict, and there was a scarcity of priests, in fact. And, and in the second half of the 19th century, Ireland became one of the most devout countries in Europe and remained that way for most of the 20th century. So, after a century of adversity during which Catholics were subjected to the penal laws, Catholic Ireland regained its footing in the 19th century. And the 19th century Ireland is a story of the gradual emergence of Catholic Ireland, mounting a challenge to the political, social and economic ascendancy of the landowning uh, classes in Ireland who had dominated the country for centuries and who, during the 19th century, started to have to give way to an emerging Catholic middle class. Now, you had in the first half of the 19th century the dismantling of the penal code and the attainment of Catholic emancipation. But the devastating impact of the Great Famine turned Catholic Ireland into a global phenomenon as Irish immigrants took their religious culture with them throughout the world. And you still find Australia, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, many of the the churches, the Catholic communities in those countries are descended essentially from, from Irish uh, immigrants. The same is true, of course, in, in Britain to a considerable extent, in Scotland also. So the key turning point for Ireland's Catholic Church was the arrival in Ireland in 1849 of Paul Cullen. And he had spent two decades in Rome, in the Curia, and after coming to Ireland, he spent 28 years as Archbishop of Dublin and became Ireland's first ever cardinal in the 1860s. The following half century after Cullen's arrival in Ireland was marked by the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland, a surge in church building, and many of the churches of Ireland were built in that period in 25 years or so after Paul Cullen's arrival in Ireland. So he really did re-energize and, and um, stimulate the institutional church in Ireland. Um, and in fact, Patrick Pierce would not have been born in Ireland but for the surge in church building in the mid 19th century. Because his father was a stonemason and a ecclesiastical sculptor from, from England who came over to Ireland in order to take part in this great church building boom. And then he, uh, he married an Irish woman, and uh, Patrick was born in, in Ireland and ended up as the leader of the Easter Rising in 1916. 
Now, although Cardinal Cullen died four years before James Joyce was born, he makes his appearance in Joyce's work, such was his stature as this great churchman of the 19th century. During the famous Christmas dinner scene, where you have a, a row between um, um, Simon Dedalus, who's Joyce's father, John Stanislaus Joyce, and his friend Mr. Casey, both of whom are fervent Parnellites and are resentful of the role played by the church in the downfall of Charles Stuart Parnell, and a vigorous debate um, starts between themselves and Mrs. Conway, who's known as Dante, and it results in a very vivid scene, which is unforgettable for anyone who's ever read Joyce's work. So Mr. Casey and um, Joyce's father, they rail against the Irish bishops, and they, and they list out all the things. They never supported any nationalist cause. They were always on the side of the British. They were never any good to Ireland, really. And then he says, and he says, and then he turns on Cullen and says, oh, oh, by God, he cried, I forgot little old Paul Cullen, another apple of God's eye. So that's how he describes Cullen. So Cullen was very much, obviously, still in Joyce's childhood, still remembered as this huge figure from the history of the regeneration of Catholicism in Ireland. Now the story of Parnell's fall from grace, brought about in Yeats's words by the bishops and the party, served to highlight the increased political influence of the Catholic Church in Ireland. Now while Joyce Sr., Joyce's father, and his Parnellite friends might, might wallow in the kind of anti-clericalism depicted in the portraits, James Joyce's Ireland was shaped by by the new realities of the late 20th century, or the late 19th century. And anti-clericalism, despite what you see, the colourful um, row between Dante supporting the bishops and uh, Simon Dedalus and Mr. Casey condemning the bishops for their betrayal of Parliament, betrayal of Ireland, anti-clericalism was a minority sport in Ireland. And it was a dog that just didn't bark in the late 19th century in Ireland. Compared with other parts of Europe where you did have strong anti-clerical traditions, not in Ireland. Parallel supporters remained a minority within Nationalist Ireland, and they weren't all necessarily anti-clerical either, but they just had a, a loyalty to the image and the, the memory of the great political leader, Charles Stuart Parnell. So the Catholic Church, throughout the turmoil of the early 20th century, managed to navigate a course whereby it sought to restrain extreme forms of nationalism and violent activity, but at the same time managed to stay close to public sentiment. So for example, while they were skeptical and critical of the Easter Rising, they very quickly came on board and and um, express sympathy and criticism of the execution of the leaders. And then subsequently, in the anti-conscription campaigns of 1918, the church was very fully involved with the uh, Sinn Féin party, as it then was, um, following the Easter Rising in producing a, um, a, a show of unity between the, the Irish party the parliamentarians, the church, and the more advanced nationalists who were involved in 
the aftermath of these to rising and then in the War of Independence from 1999. So it always managed to stay on the right side of Irish history, managed to stay in tune with the wishes or with the sentiments of the wider public. Mainly because, of course, priests were very well connected, they, they, they lived in the community, they understood uh, the passions of the people and were able to, to guide the church in a direction to ensure that it never fell out of step with the nation. Despite its desire, obviously, to avoid giving any, um, giving any uh, encouragement to extreme forms of political or paramilitary activity. Now, it's instructive to look at uh, Joyce's uh, upbringing alongside those of Tom Kettle, who would have become part of the ruling class of Home Rule Ireland, had Ireland managed to achieve Home Rule in the first decades of the 20th century. And like Pierce, McDonough and De Valera, who helped to bring about the transformation of um, Irish, of Ireland after uh, 1916. So one of the things that, that unites Joyce, the parliamentarian Tom Kevin, who died on the Western Front in 1916, De Valera, who led one of the battalions in the Easter Rising, and Pierce and McDonough, both of whom were executed for their parts, were signatories of the proclamation in 1916. The thing that unites them is that they all went to prominent Catholic schools. And they were, if you like, the first generation of Catholic students who were able to go to elite schools and then to a university. The, Royal University, uh, the Catholic University uh, degrees were awarded by the Royal University and then in 1908 it, it became um, the National University that we have today. Now, Pierce, for example, set up his own school in Rathfarnham, where McDonough was his deputy. Pierce was principal, McDonough was his deputy. Now, that is not to suggest that everyone who took part in the upheavals of 1916 and afterwards were people from relatively privileged backgrounds who had gone to good schools and universities. Because only 5% of the population in the late 19th century attended what were called intermediate schools. So clearly, the vast majority of people who were involved did not have the same education as Pierce and McDonough and uh, De Valera and Joyce and, and Tom Kettle. But it's interesting that those five, or those four individuals, all of whom acquired leadership positions in the island of their time, Political positions of political leadership in the island at that time all went to <coughs> Catholic schools of a kind that James Joyce went to as well. Kettle went to Clongos, where Joyce went. Clongos was founded in 1814, the first is Ireland's oldest Catholic school. And our, our current foreign minister, whom I met yesterday for the first time, is also a graduate of Clongos. Um, now, Joyce describes his experience in Clongos in great detail in a portrait. And it obviously left its mark on him. And in fact, Joyce's novel could well be titled A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Catholic, because it is absolutely supersaturated uh, with his Catholic upbringing. Now, most of Ireland's leading schools 
leaving Catholic schools, traced their origins to the second half of the 19th century. Newbridge College was founded in 1850, Christian Brothers College Monkstown, 1856, Blackrock College, the alma mater of Eamon de Valera, 1860, Terenure College, also in 1860, Rockwell College, where de Valera taught in Thomas McDonough studies, 1864, Presentation Brothers Cork, 1878, uh, Christian Brothers College Cork, 1888, and St. Mary's College in Dublin, 1890. So you have this extraordinary increase in the number of fee-paying Catholic schools available for those who were from backgrounds that could afford to send their children to such schools. And the emergence of those schools, I think, reflects a burgeoning social con confidence within Catholic Ireland in the second half of the 19th century. As Ireland became gradually more prosperous, the population declined, but the average income rose, and a middle class began to develop. But they were not the only schools that um, supplied the generation that witnessed and that drove the political transformation of Ireland. Others like W.T. Cosgrave and Sean Lamass were graduates of the less prestigious Christian Brothers schools, which I went to as well in Waterford uh, in the 1960s. Um, and the Christian Brothers, of course, were an order that emerged in Waterford, my hometown, in the early years of the 19th century, but grew steadily throughout the century. So there was, to some extent, an educational revolution in Ireland in the second half of the 19th century, with a now significant number of boys in particular emerging from intermediate schools and having the opportunity, some of them, to go on to study in a university. And a university that Joyce describes as a kind of an incubator of advanced nationalism. Joyce didn't share those views, but you can see how um, the university became a place where new ideas were bred among the, the young emerging Catholic professional class. So James Joyce therefore belonged to the first generation of Irish Catholics educated in elite schools and subsequently at what became known as University College Dublin. Now Clongos comes across, his school comes across in a portrait as an environment that was both anglicised, the references to games of cricket, and the boys were divided into teams called York and Lancaster. <laughs> it was also a highly Catholic environment. Uh, he quotes that rhyme, uh, Clongos is my dwelling place and heaven my expectation. It's one of his little, little um, rhymes that he has in the uh, first chapters of the portrait. So the intensity of Joyce's boyhood immersion in Catholicism is captured vividly and at some considerable length in a portrait. In fact, it does go on a bit with the, uh, you know, the fires of hell are described in, in, in sort of terms that would certainly lead one to, to understand the meaning of eternity. Uh, because it's a very long section of the book, uh, but very powerfully written. And then he describes what he calls the silent lapse of his soul as driven by, quote, the fierce longings of his heart, end quote, and confronted by, quote, the snares of the world, he was about to fall away from the path of virtue which he'd been on uh, from his time at school in Columbus. 
Now in the final chapter of a portrait set at the university in the, early, in the late 19th century, Stephen or Joyce develops his artistic persona and he confronts the ardent Catholicism and the new nationalism of his fellow students in turn of the century Ireland. He is proud of his position as a doubter, as a religious skeptic, and he kind of weighs it in front of all of his friends at, at college. He was asked by Cranley, his friend Cranley, if his religious doubts were too strong to be overcome, and Stephen Joyce responds haughtily, quote, I do not wish to overcome them. So he wasn't really for turning. When he, uh, when he decided to become a, a skeptic, he decided that he was, he was going to do it for good and all. Pierce, McDonough, De Valera, and Tom Kettle were all third level students around the same time as James Joyce. Kettle, who was the son of an Irish party and Land League uh, stalwart, found his way into the Westminster Parliament, where he served from 1906 to 1910 as MP for Tyrone, uh, having been a founder member in 1904 of what was called the Young Ireland Branch of the United Irish League. So my purpose in mentioning this is that People assume that the, because Kettle ended up dying on the Western Front, that he was your standard Irish parliamentarian who followed Redmond's advice and went to war and was killed in 1916. But Kettle actually was part of the same generation as Pierce and McDonough. He knew McDonough actually, and knew Pierce. He was part of the same generation. And in fact, what he did when he left college was not to do the conventional thing and join the party and then become an MP, which he did in the end. But he, first of all, he helped to set up um, a branch of the United Irish League called the Young Ireland Branch. And of course, by calling it the Young Ireland Branch, he was harking back to the romantic nationalist movement of the mid-19th century, the Young Ireland movement. And basically, the aim of this, the United Irish League was the kind of, was the mass organisation that supported the Irish party. And these young people from University College Dublin, including Tom Kettle, set up this branch, which was, had members, all of whom were young, highly educated, and basically thought the leaders of the parliamentary party, all of whom were a generation older than them, who'd been around for ages, were past their sell-by days, and they were trying to agitate for a more advanced form of nationalism within the Irish Parliamentary Party. So Shane Leslie uh, wrote of Kettle that he seemed destined, quote, to reconcile the roles, uh, sorry, reconcile the old generation of parliamentarians with the new Ireland, which had arisen to demand better things. So. Even someone like Tom Kettle, who maybe had a more conventional political path through Parliament and then to the battlefields of the Western Front where he died in 1916, he also was from that kind of American <coughs> generation who were impatient with the older ways, the more conservative ways of Redmond and Healy and O'Brien and Dillon and all the, the major figures from the Irish Parliamentary Party of the early part of the 20th century.
Now, a portrait offers glimpses of the politics of the new generation. Stephen's close friend, Davin, and he's representative of traditional nationalist Ireland. Uh, he was, quote, schooled at the feet of Michael Cusack the Gale. Now, Michael Cusack, of course, appears in Ulysses again as the citizen, and he's pilloried and lampooned by Joyce as this kind of comic book uh, version of Gaelic Ireland, sort of narrow uh, Gaelic obsessions that I think Joyce unfairly depicts um, Cusack, but it's great fun, and, and you can see how Joyce enjoyed himself. Uh, and I'll read a little bit from that bit from that part of Ulysses in a moment. So Joyce describes um, Dallin's mentality. He says, "Quote: His rude imagination was shaped by the broken lights of Irish myth." So, in other words, another person who was looking back to the past, to Irish myth. Uh, for inspiration. Joyce wanted to look forward. He was always looking forward. What did he say in, um, he compared himself to, um, to Yeats in a portrait, and he talks, I'm quoting from memory now, about um, Michael Robarkas, that's Yeats, is always thinking about the beauty that has faded from the world. Not I. I want to uh, embrace the beauty that has not yet come into the world. So he wanted to look forward and create a new reality rather than drawing on the myths of the past for inspiration. Now, Davin, in a portrait, describes himself as an Irish nationalist, first and foremost. That was, that was the fate chosen by many of Joyce's contemporaries. And I'm always impressed by someone like De Valera, who'd come from a very poor background, through his own ability, got scholarships, ended up in Blackrock College, ended up teaching, at the Teacher Training College at Carysport in Dublin. And then in 1916, risked everything by taking part in the Easter Rising and could easily have been executed. Even though he had a young family, just recently married, a young family. Thomas McDonough likewise. He'd come from, his parents were primary teachers in County Tipperary. He'd risen through the ranks. He'd become a lecturer at University College Dublin, married, a couple of children. Then he goes out in 1916 and sacrifices himself. And you have to think, they must have known that they were taking a huge risk by organising an insurrection in the middle of the Great War. They must have known that their chances of surviving this as signatories of the Proclamation of Independence were pretty slim indeed. Yet they did it. So that's why I'm saying. When Joyce describes Davin as an Irish nationalist first and foremost, he must have been describing also the attitudes of De Valera, of Pierce, McDonough, and indeed Tonkin. So Joyce parted ways with his contemporaries in two senses. Firstly, he did not share that early 20th century enthusiasm for the revival of the Gaelic language. The Gaelic League, founded in 1893, was an incubator of nationalism. Thomas MacDonough, for example, was a teacher in Kilkenny. He referred to himself as the finest West Britisher in Ireland. He was writing his 
MA thesis on Campion, the Elizabethan poet Campion. So very much immersed in English literature, seeing himself as a, a scholar within the traditions of English academic study. He went along to a Gaelic League meeting to poke fun at these crazy people who were trying to revive the Irish language. And he fell in love with the Irish language. And for the rest of his life, he was obsessed with, uh, with the Irish language, even though he continued to publish poetry in English. And there were many others like MacDonough who were drawn into it. De Valera also. De Valera was someone who had no interest in politics until he joined the Gaelic League and then was drawn into public life through his enthusiasm for the revival of the Gaelic language. And Joyce just never went down that road. In, the, in a portrait, he mentioned that he dropped out of Irish lessons after just one class. So he went in, had a look at it and thought, not for me. I want to be a writer of the English language. No interest in this backward-looking uh, Irish language enthusiasm of, of my contemporaries. And the second factor in Joyce's case was that he'd already left Ireland by the time of the Home Rule crisis of 1912 to 1914. That was the crisis that changed everything. Had Home Rule been granted in 1912, 13, or 14, the course of Irish history would have been very, very different. But the failure of Home Rule and, and the crisis that erupted and the creation of the Irish Volunteers in 1913, which MacDonough joined and De Valera joined and Pierce joined, and all of those who were involved in 1916 joined the Irish Volunteers. Tom Kendall joined as well, but left uh, when the war broke out. And of course, the Irish Volunteers was established by a man called MacNeill, or MacNeill, who was a professor of Irish at University College Dublin. So again you see the influence of the educational revolution that brought about all these new private schools and finally a university that would cater for the nationalist population of Ireland. So Pierce, MacDonough and De Valera took on leadership roles in the Irish Volunteers and that's what led them to fight in 1916 and in the case of Pierce and MacDonough to be executed for their part in the rising. <coughs> By that time, James Joyce, of course, was living in continental Europe and he was having to grapple with the upheavals, not of political insurrection in Ireland, but of the First World War, which of course caused Joyce to have to move from his base in Trieste and, and take refuge in Zurich. Now, in the portrait, Joyce gives a compelling account of the rationale behind his departure from Ireland in 1904. He says, quote, When the soul of man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. In other words, he would not be confined by the constraints of language, nationality, and religion. What Joyce objected to, it seems to me, was the combination he encountered in early 20th century Ireland of Gaelic language enthusiasm that he couldn't share, of increasing nationalist enthusiasm, which he was uh, skeptical of, and Catholicism, which he had 
had come to reject. This was too sharp a cocktail for Joyce. In his view, it had turned Ireland into, quote, the old sow that eats her farrow. The young Joyce did not want to be consumed by Ireland. He wanted to dissect Ireland from the outside. In Ulysses, Joyce conjures up an unrivaled portrait of early 20th century Ireland. Now, Catholicism plays a far more modest part in Ulysses than it plays in a portrait. Ulysses essentially is dealing with other things, because after all, the hero of Ulysses is Leopold Blue, and he's Jewish background, Hungarian origin. So he's a very untypical, very atypical Irishman. And Joyce focuses on him, uh, on Stephen Dennis, who's Joyce himself, and on Molly Bloom, who uh, is uh, Leopold's wife, and she comes from Gibraltar. And she's not exactly either a typical uh, Dubliner of the early 20th century. Now, there is some joshing of Catholicism in Ulysses, but most of it is, is, is fairly jocular. It's not really, there's, there's not really much venom in it. I mean, he, he, he has um, um, Leopold Bloom visit the church on, on uh, Western Row. And he, he, refer, and he says, good idea, the Latin. Stupefies them first. In other words, he found that the abuse of Latin was designed to stupefy the public, <laughs> the congregation. And then he goes on to, you know, uh, you know, to describe the Eucharist in, in you know, in, own, in, 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 uh, in rather unflattering terms. Um, but anyway, um, so in the, in the Cyclops episode of, of Ulysses, Joyce reserves his lampooning anger not for a Catholic Ireland, but for Irish Ireland. And this was the Ireland that he, he saw emerging in the early 20th century. The Ireland of, of um, which focused on the Gaelic language, Catholicism, and Joyce found that to be somewhat uh, not to his liking. And I want to read you this bit, um, and I'm reading it because I like it and I think it's fun. Uh, so I'll read it anyway. And it, it does have a relevance, which I'll point out later, but you might be wondering what this is all about, but please bear with me. And this is where, this is Joyce's description of Michael Cusack, the founder of the GEA, and it's a lampoon of, 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 of epic proportions. The figure seated on a large boulder at the foot of a round tower was that of a broad-shouldered, deep-chested, strong-limbed, frank-eyed, red-haired, freely freckled, shaggy-bearded, white-mouthed, Large nose, long headed, deep voice, bare knee, brawny handed, hairy legged, ruddy faced, sinewy armed hero. <laughs> he wore a long, unsleeved garment of recently flayed oxhide, reaching to the knees in a loose kilt, and this was bound about his middle by a girdle of plaited straw and rushes. Beneath this, he wore trues of deerskin roughly stitched with gut. His nether extremities were encased in high Valbriggan buskins dyed in lichen purple, the feet being shod with brogues of salted cowhide lace, the windpipe of the same beast. From his girdle hung a row of sea stones which dangled at every movement of his frame, and on these were graven with rude, with rude yet striking art, the tribal images of Irish heroes and heroines of antiquity. Cucullin, Column of the Hundred Battles, Nile Nine Hostages, Brian of King Cora, the Ordinary Malachy, Art McMurray, Shane O'Neill, Father John Murphy, Owen Rowe, Patrick Sarsfield, Red Hugh O'Donnell, 
Red Jim McDermott, Sogard Owen O'Growney, Michael Dwyer, Francie Higgins, Henry Joy McGrattan, Goliath, Horace Whitley, Horace Wheatley, Thomas Collett, Peg Woffington, the Village Blacksmith, Captain Moonlight, Captain Boycott, Dante Alieri, Christopher Columbus, St. Furzer, St. Brendan, Marshall McMahon, Charlemagne, Theobald Wolf Tone, the Mother of the Maccabees, the Last of the Mohegans, the Rose of Castile, the Man from Galway, the Man that broke the Bank of Monte Carlo, the Man in the Gap, the Woman Who Didn't, Benjamin Franklin, Napoleon Bonaparte, John L. Sullivan, Cleopatra, Savorian Delish, Julius Caesar, Paracelsus, Sir Thomas Lipton, William Tell, Michelangelo, Hayes, Muhammad, the Bride of Lammermoor, Peter the Hermit, Peter the Packer, Dark Rosaline, Patrick Downey, Shakespeare, Brian Confucius, Martin Gutenberg, Patricio Velasquez, Captain Nemo, Tristan Isolde, the First Prince of Wales, Thomas Cook and Son, the Bold Soldier Boy, Aaron the Pogue, Dick Turpin, Ludwig Beethoven, the Colleen Vaughan, Wadner Healy, Angus the Culdy, Dolly Mount, Sidney Parade, Ben Hoth, Valentine Greatrakes, Adam and Eve, Arthur Wellesley, Boss Croker, Herodotus, um, Jack the Joint Killer, the Tama Buddha, Lady Godiva, the Lady of Killarney, Valor of the Evil Eye, the Queen of Sheba, Aki Nagel, Joe Nagel, Alessandra Volta, Jeremiah Donovan Rossa, Don Philip O'Sullivan Bear. That's it. Where does that come from? That, I think, is like the litany from the old mass. All the saints' names. I mean, but I think in some ways this is evidence of Joyce being super saturated with the religion which he, which he came to disbelieve because he does use the Cyclops episode, which I think is a, is a wonderful and um, hilarious um, piece of writing. It's, it's full of lists. Some of them are, are religious lists, but more of them are just lists of trees and how. I think it all comes from this, this fascination with listening to litanies. I can remember myself all these litanies from my childhood. Um, you no longer hear them, it's dreadful. You should bring them back. <laughs> Joyce would be very pleased. Um, so, anyway, Joyce had a great fondness for lists, and the Cyclotemple is really full of them. Now, James Joyce was shaped by the Ireland he left in 1904. It was a country in which an increasingly confident, well-educated generation of Irish Catholics were mounting a challenge to the established order. Not just the government, but also the Irish party, which had controlled the Irish political world for the previous 50 years. The prime vehicle for this challenge remained the Irish party. But as I said, there was also a challenge within uh, Nationalist Ireland, which was impatient with the Irish party and felt they were old fuddy-duddies and needed to be replaced by a more vigorous generation with more vigorous methods to pursue Ireland's age-old goals. More radical strains of nationalism were also emerging. Arthur Griffith, founder of the original Sinn Féin, is name-checked several times in Ulysses, and Joyce had great regard for Griffith. The Gaelic League, though explicitly non-political in its early years, cultivated a more intensive sense of Irishness, which could hardly fail to have political consequences, as indeed it did, drawing people like De Valera, Pierce and McDonough into action in, in 1916. Then there was D.P. Moran, editor of the leader and promoter of the concept of an Irish Ireland, composed of Catholic and Gaelic elements. Now Moran vigorously pushed his brand of nationalism and he targeted Yeats and others like Yeats, George Russell, for example, whom he referred to as the hairy fairy, because he was rather, he had a lot, he had a lot of hair. Um, I've actually written about George Russell in the current edition of History Ireland. 
he was also a great man in his own right, and um, you know, an economist and a, a mystic, uh, a poet, and an economist, and all three somehow combined in, in his marvelous personality. So more vigorously targeted people like Yeats, and you know, said you cannot be, you know, you cannot be uh, Irish because you're not Catholic and you don't write in the Irish language, and those two things are essential prerequisites for being Irish, according to. Uh, to more of the view of the world. And he regarded Yeats as, as, a, an ex, as an example of what he called the English mind in Ireland. Now I doubt if Joyce ever came onto Moran's radar screen, but Joyce might almost have had Moran rather than Cusack in mind when he wrote the Cyclops chapter, because it is an attack on nationalism that has a, a narrow focus, that is conditioned by just two elements. Gaelicism and Catholicism as far as Moran was concerned. And he might have been, he might have had more in mind when he described his aversion to the nets of language, nationality, and religion. Far from being a centre of paralysis, as Joyce described it, early 20th century Dublin was a city in flux with all these new movements emerging. The literary movement, the Gaelic League, Sinn Féin, the Gaelic Athletic Association, all of them bubbling up at the same time. And, and it's because it was a city undergoing a period of change, a period of, 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 of agitation driven by many people from the kind of background that Joyce came, the uh, graduates of, of University College Dublin, and of the private schools whose um, names I mentioned earlier. And that is why Dublin provided such a compelling backdrop for Joyce's works, although Joyce himself wanted to extract himself from that <coughs> maelstrom and get far enough away to be able to observe this fascinating place from the outside. Now, in a key passage in, in the Cyclops chapter, Bloom, with his Hungarian Jewish background, is challenged to declare, Mr. What is your nation, Mr. Bloom? One of the other characters in the, who's a more, more, more conventional uh, background, asks the question, What is your nation, Mr. Bloom? And Bloom responds, Ireland, I was born here, Ireland. Thus, Joyce asserted his commitment to the idea of nationality based on place rather than on ethnic or religious origins. And that was a very important statement on Joyce's part. And it's a statement that I think we could well um, reflect on in today's early, or today's 21st century world. Now after Joyce, um, undoubtedly Ireland after independence became, now I think there's often an exaggeration of the extent to which Ireland was a, was a, a Catholic dominant country, but undoubtedly there was a Catholic ethos running through the country very strongly and it, it didn't matter whether, whether it was the Commonwealth government in the 1920s that was very um, strongly oriented towards the Catholic Church. De Valera, when he came in, was feared initially, thought he would be a kind of a, you know, a, a, kind of a rebel figure and he might have difficulty because the Church had condemned 
the and treaty uh, group uh, in during the Civil War. But De Valera also strongly embraced uh, the Catholic Church and built up a partnership with the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid. So it was definitely the case that um, Catholic Ireland became the dominant force in for most of 20th century Ireland. And our writers, to a large extent, became critics, almost were obliged to be critical of the mores of the um, society in which they lived. So Frank O'Connor, Sean O'Fuelon, Neil Flaherty, Sean O'Casey, um, almost all of our writers um, uh, were, I think, destined almost to challenge the prevailing orthodoxies of Catholic Ireland during the period between 1920 and, say, the 1990s. So today, Ireland very definitely embraces uh, Joyce, who would have been considered scandalous not long ago, uh, is now revered in Ireland, and we have a kind of a national festival every year, which we call Bloomsday, to celebrate the, um, uh, the day in June. 1904, on which the novel Ulysses is set. And of course, Yeats is, is revered figure as well. We had this uh, celebration of Yeats's work for the 150th anniversary of his birth in 2015, which is a great success. And there are, um, you know, we have a Beckett Bridge in Dublin now. Um, Beckett would have been regarded as an incomprehensible uh, modernist for, you know, all of his life and even beyond that time. Now he's, he's um, He's revered by having a bridge named after him. And of course, there's a, there's a monument to uh, Oscar Wilde uh, up in um, uh, Merrick Square, where Oscar Wilde lived. So, so I think we've embraced the, uh, the complexities and the, the variety of our national literary heritage. So my, my conclusion is that, that uh, Joyce emerged from an Ireland that was changing because of the educational revolution that occurred between 1883, in particular, when the um, Catholic University was revived and moved to Oslo Terrace, where Joyce was a student, um, and the early part of the 20th century, and that generation of people, a very talented generation of people. In fact, the last book I was involved in last year was a collection of essays called The Shaping of Modern Ireland which was a series of 19 essays about the people from that era. And when you look at them, they were a remarkable bunch of people, including James Augustine Joyce. Thank you very much.